Hey, people, this is a good thing. I want to thank you all, and I want to thank the elders especially for having the, uh, the confidence in me to bring a lesson this morning, and I would like to begin uh, by quoting the Apostle Paul in the first uh, chapter of his epistle to the Romans. <clears throat> so as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you who are in Wichita also. We are all familiar with this passage, should be. Turn to Romans chapter 6, if you will. Where Paul begins this chapter, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? As the old King James says, God forbid. How shall we, who have died to sin, live any longer therein? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. We come to this passage quite often when we discuss baptism, don't we? We come here to uh, show uh, uh, what baptism, the efficacy of it, what it does for us, the uniting of us with Christ. We go to this passage to show the mode of baptism, which it is a burial. It's not a sprinkling or a pouring. It is, is a burial. But before we can talk about baptism, before we can preach a sermon on baptism, we need to be able to answer that question. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Here I'm going to have trouble with my PowerPoint. Ah. We learned this morning that context is important as we studied the Bible. And we asked those questions, especially the W's, who, what, why, where, when. What prompted Paul to ask such a question? I mean, you would think it's a no-brainer, wouldn't you? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What prompted Paul to ask that question? Well, let's look at the context and back up into the third chapter of Romans. And I want to notice that Paul had enemies and that there were some accusing him of preaching this very thing that it was all right to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. And without getting into the weeds, sometimes Paul gets a little wordy in his epistle to the Romans and, and many of his epistles. And, uh, but let's notice in verse 5, well, he had been talking to the Jew in verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew or what is the profit of circumcision? And he goes on and he's, in verse 5 he says, But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust to inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not for that. How will God judge the world? And for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to his glory, in other words, his enemies were accusing him of being a liar, not preaching the truth. For if the truth of God has increased through my light of his glory, why am I still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, uh, and as some affirm that we say, uh, their condemnation is just. And let's continue in the context of, of this epistle to the Romans. When we look at the fifth chapter, and we'll notice Paul's teaching uh, concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, how God can be a righteous being and pardon sinful man. This has been his topic. In chapter 1 and verse 16, Paul taught us that, the, the, uh, that it was the gospel that is God's power and salvation. It was given to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so he, he goes into a meticulous uh, description of how this is possible, how God can be righteous and forgive sinful mankind. And he introduces, well, actually he introduced it Jesus over in the third chapter, but he, he mentions uh, again, verse 7 of chapter 5 of Romans for scarcely for a righteous man one would die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, let's not lose track of, of, of where Paul's going here. Uh, and and I, I still want to answer uh, the question, why, why Paul asked this question and, and his enemies have been accusing him of teaching this, that it's okay to sin, that grace will abound. He just gives us uh, the means by which salvation can be found through the death of his son Jesus. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, Much more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That phrase, much more, is used five times in 12 verses. And so that's important because this is, this is what Paul is, is getting at, that the grace of God, there's, there's more grace, there's much more grace than there is sin in the world. Grace can, God's grace can take care of any amount of sin that men produce. Uh, verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And, and he begins in verse 12. He makes this comparison uh, between Adam and Christ. Uh, Adam, the man that, that first sinned, 
therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, there we go, we have the, the Bible's answer to uh, uh, inherited sin, don't we? We inherit Adam's sin. Right there, isn't that what that says? And death through sin, and thus death spread to all men. Why is that? It tells us, doesn't it? Because all sinned. And so the point is that, that we all follow the example of Adam. That until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. And he goes on and, and talks in verse 15. Uh, but the free gift is not like the offense... For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And picking up in verse 17, for if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more, notice that phrase, those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, Grace abounded much more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so Christ might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And so, what is Paul saying here? I think there's two truths that are implied in this passage. There is no sin, there is no amount of sin, uh, that God cannot forgive. I think that's just exactly what Paul was teaching, and that God is glorified when men accept his grace on his terms, of which, according to the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is through the blood of Christ. So those two things are implied, and I can understand how some would get this, uh, this misunderstanding that, that since grace abounded much more, then sin won't affect us. And I think, that, I think that that is a danger in all of us. I think, we, I think we can adopt that reasoning within ourselves. And I hope you'll understand as we continue in this lesson. Let's look at the mindset of those who would think this way. And I'm going to begin in chapter 2 of Romans. Again, context. Paul has already talked about this before he got to write the sixth chapter. Uh, he had written in the first chapter of Romans, he had, he had uh, talked about those who uh, had knew God in uh, the first chapter in verse 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They became futile in their thoughts. Uh, he's talking about the Gentile world, and uh, three times he said that they became so debased that, they, that God gave them up. He just gave them over. Verse 24, 
Uh, verse 26, verse 28, and even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind. And now he jumps in chapter 2 and he talks about the Jew. And I know this is talking to the Jew because in verse 17 he mentions the Jew. But he writes to them, uh, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for in whatever you judge another you condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. Now he had just condemned the Gentile for all of these horrendous sins that he mentions uh, in verse 26 on down through that rest of that chapter, and now he accuses the Jews of practicing the same thing, that they would be a hypocrite. It's kind of reminiscent of, of Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 7 uh, in, the, in the first part of that chapter where Jesus says, Judge not, lest you be judged, for with what judgment you judge another, that judgment will be meted out to you. And he goes on and talks to them and, and tells them, before you can take the speck out of your brother's eye, you better take that plank out of your own eye. And then Jesus taught in, in the 23rd chapter of Matthew about the hypocrites that were the scribes and Pharisees, and he put pronounced seven, possibly eight woes upon the Pharisees and hypocrites. And then in, in the 23rd verse of that chapter, he says, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you, you tithe, mint, anise, and cumin, and yet you neglect the weight of your matters of the law, mercy and justice. These you should have done without leaving the others undone, he said. And so these, these Jewish leaders were, were uh, picking, cherry-picking, if you will, what they wanted to obey and, and the, and the law, parts of the law that they thought they liked or wanted to, uh, wanted to practice, and the rest of them they were neglecting. And let's look at the 17th verse of Romans chapter 2. Indeed you are called a Jew and rest on the law and make your boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are excellent being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind a light to those who are in darkness an instructor of the foolish a teacher of babes, having a form of knowledge in the truth and the law. And I want to say that, wow, I can put myself in that position. I know I have the truth. I have studied the Bible seriously for over 30 years. I know I can teach babes how to become a Christian. I know that what, I've, that what I have received from others and have put into practice, that I have the truth. But he goes on, verse 21. You, therefore, who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say that you do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Well, I don't steal, and I don't commit adultery. 
But I do violate James 4.17. And I'm not going to quote that. You can look it up. Because everybody sitting in here violates that same commandment. And so how can we be self-righteous? This is the point that I want to make, the point that Paul is trying to make. Now, why, you might ask, would these people, the hypocrites, the self-righteous, and, and they're probably both related or one in the same, why would they think that since grace abounded much more, that sin won't affect them? Why do they think that? Why would we think that? Well, if you thought that it did affect you, it would bother your conscience, wouldn't it? And you couldn't live with yourself. And so you had to justify your actions and make excuses for why you're not doing what God has told you to do, therefore to soothe and smooth your conscience. And you definitely don't want a preacher preaching a sermon like I'm preaching right now. And then we have the followers of men. Chapter 4 of Romans, Paul begins with Abraham, the father of the Jews. John chapter 8, I'm not going to turn there, I've, I've referenced it. The Jews were real, what's the word, um, proud I guess. They were real proud of their father Abraham. And Jesus told them in John chapter 8 uh, that they were not like their father Abraham. They said, we are not of fornication. Our father is Abraham. And then again also in the 39th verse. And then Jesus tells them, your father is the devil. Well, don't get me wrong. Abraham, if you look at the fourth chapter in verse 16... We are to emulate his faith. He is the father of our faith. But also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. And so Abraham was a good man. But listen to what Paul says about him in chapter 4 and verse 1. He says, what then shall we say, that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh, or that, that he has something to boast about in his flesh? Uh, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. And why is that? Well, we all know the story. In Genesis chapter 12, right after he received the promise, he went down into Egypt, and, and he didn't have enough faith in God at that time in his life to trust in God to keep him safe, and so he told his wife Sarah that you tell Pharaoh that you're my sister so they won't take you and kill me. Yet he was a good man, a faithful man. He was a man. A human being like we all are. And so what does all of this lead up to? It eventually ends up, because we can't stand to live with ourselves, uh, knowing that we do practice sin, and so we have to invent this doctrine of perseverance of the saints, that once I'm saved, I'm always saved, and the little sins that I do, uh, they're not going to affect me. 
Well, let's look at the truth of the matter. In Romans, in chapter 6 and in verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey? Whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. We will be slaves to one master. Now we can try and serve two masters and, and, and I've been there. I tried to have my foot in the church and have one in the gutter at the same time. It doesn't work. Look what Jesus, what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6. In verse 24, our Lord said that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now think about this. You cannot give full devotion to two masters. You'll end up giving more devotion to one than you will to the other. You'll end up, in the end, hating one, loving one and hating the other. You just can't do it. And I want to notice that our master requires obedience. This is why Paul wrote the letter to the Romans in the first chapter and in verse 5 he says, through him, that is Jesus, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. And then he goes ahead and repeats that, the second verse from the very end of his epistle. And so Paul's purpose for writing this epistle was for obedience to the faith. And look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 17 as he uh, reminds the Roman brethren, and these are Christians that he's writing to, of what they had done, their commitment that they had made to their Lord. But God be thanked, verse 17, Romans 6, that through, though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And then there's that rhetorical question that Jesus asks in Luke 6 and verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? I mean, how are you going to answer him? And so, is Paul teaching Perfect obedience, perfect law-keeping. It was Jesus inferring perfect law-keeping in Luke chapter 6 and verse 46. Jesus also said in John's gospel, if you love me, keep my commandments. We have brethren, I have just learned, that are teaching that a Christian will not sin. And so they're getting real close, if not already teaching, 
that we must be perfect in our obedience to Christ. Well, Paul's going to deal more with this in the 7th and the 8th chapters, but I want to turn to John's, uh, John's epistle, 1 John, and I'm going to let John handle this, talk about it. He tells us in the 2nd chapter in the 1st verse why he wrote his epistle. He says, these things I write unto you, brethren, that ye will not sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And so the main purpose of his epistle was so that they would not sin. And I want to back up in, in the first chapter, and I want to notice what he writes concerning sin and fellowship with God. In verse 5, now he, th he's writing this to Christians. If you back up in the first three verses, uh, you'll notice that he is speaking to Christians, those that have a like precious faith. And in verse 5 he says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. He's using uh, darkness as a reference to sin. We, we should all know this. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In the blood of Jesus Christ, his son cleanses us from all sin. And then comes verse 8. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. It's talking to each and every one of us as Christians. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. We all know from experience that we, even as Christians, fall short from time to time, don't we? We commit sin. We transgress the law of Christ. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And so John is catching us at both ends, isn't he? If I say I have no sin or if I have not sinned, he's got us coming and going. And I want to say that this is what is, some have referred to as the second law of pardon. He's talking to Christians. Again, he's talking to Christians. And so if you say that you have no sin, you deceive yourself. And how do I harmonize this? Again, in understanding the scriptures, Scriptures harmonize with one another. Jesus said, asked that question, uh, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? John wrote, because, so that you would not sin. And yet, in the first chapter, he says that you do sin. If you say that you don't sin as a Christian, you deceive yourself. And if you say you've never sinned, you, you say, you, you, you're... Uh, uh, you make him a liar, you make God a liar, verse 10. And so how do we harmonize all of this? 
We're going to compare 1 John 1 and verse 6 through 10 that we've just read. We're going to compare that with Romans 8 and verse 1. And I want, but before I go to Romans 8, I want to notice something. Uh, verse 6 of, of 1 John 1. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness. That little word walk will describe and define the whole thing and solve the problem. A walk is not a single act or a single sin. A walk is a way of life. If my way of life is walking in darkness, then I have no fellowship with God. But if my walk is in the light, being directed and led by the Spirit, as Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 and verse, I believe it's 14, then that's all that I can do. Let's take a look at, at Romans 8, and I want to notice something that Paul writes in this epistle to the Romans. There is, therefore, verse 1, Romans 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk, there's that word again, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And so he's talking about a way of life. When you study the seventh chapter of Romans, you'll find... What John was talking about, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves because there's this thing working inside of us, this flesh, that tries to draw us back into the world. And I won't get into that, but I have another lesson coming, uh, working on. And so that's how we can harmonize that. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? What shall we say then? Verse 1 of Romans chapter 1 again. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who have died to sin live any longer therein? And I'm going to ask the question. And Paul asks this question. What did sin do for you? When you were walking in sin, when you were outside of Christ and walking in the world, what did sin do for you? I speak in human terms, Romans 6, verse 19, because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness, for holiness, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness, or, or you felt no obligation to be righteous when you were slaves of sin. You felt no obligation to be obedient to the law of God, or else you would have changed. I don't like to use the NIV, but in this case, I thought that it gave a better sense of of what Paul's saying here in the, in the 20th verse. 
when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. Righteousness did not control your life. Put that on the other foot. Now that you are a Christian, righteousness does control your life, or it better control your life. I want to finish reading this passage, and I asked the question, what did sin do for you? Verse 21, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What did sin do for you? Did nothing but get you in trouble. It did nothing but cause us problems. We all know this. We should all admit this. For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does it mean to die to sin? Paul begins to tell us in verse 6, this topic is so very important. This topic is so important to anyone who is considering being obedient to the gospel of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism. You have to answer that question. What shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Before you can go into the waters of baptism. Perhaps you hadn't considered all these things and when you went into the waters of baptism years ago and you asked yourself this question as I asked myself this question and I asked it to my wife. I said, did we do that? when we were baptized? And we both had to say no. We did not die to sin. Therefore, we were baptized that very hour. What does it mean to die to sin? Knowing this, verse 6, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. He uses a figure of speech. Crucifying the body. We weren't literally crucified. When you die to sin, you don't have to nail yourself to a cross. It's not what he's talking about. It's a figure of speech. You're putting away all of that past life. Our scripture reading before the lesson, Colossians 3, 1 through 6, is a very literal definition of what it means to die to sin. And he goes on, verse 19, and not being weak in the, whoops, better stay in the sixth chapter, verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more, death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died 
He died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also. That now he's making, bringing the point home to us. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lusts, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Do you know people that, that knew you before you became a Christian, and then after you became a Christian, did they ask you, you're just not the same person. United together in the likeness of his death. Romans 6, verse 5. This is where I have to be. This is where you have to be if you're going to have eternal life after this life is over. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death... Certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. How am I united together with Christ? I am not united together with Christ because of his death or in his death, as denominationalism wants to teach us. I am united to Christ in the likeness of his death. What does that mean? And when does this take place? Verse 3. Romans 6, verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. And speaking of his resurrection, did you notice the action that takes place in verses 3 through 5? If you look at 1 Corinthians 15, that as Paul declared unto the brethren the gospel, he said in verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. There is a reenactment of the death burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As we unite ourselves together with him in the likeness of his death through a watery grave of baptism. However, what shall we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. John prepared the way for New Testament baptism. Mark chapter 1 and verse 4, the Bible says, 
John came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And so John introduced what kind of baptism Christian baptism would be all about. It would be a baptism of repentance. And this is why Peter, when, when confronted with uh, the believing Jews, when they cried out because they were convicted of crucifying the Christ, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter preached unto them to repent and be baptized. He didn't tell them to be baptized and then repent. He told them to repent and then be baptized. Change your mind. Make a commitment to Jesus and to God the Father that you will no longer walk in, in the worldly ways, in the sinful ways that you used to walk. Change your mind on that. Repent. And the fruits of repentance will come after that. And then be baptized for the remission of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. If you've never done that, I would encourage you very much to think about it. If you've done that, if you've been obedient to the gospel of Christ and somehow wavered off the path and started to walk in a different direction, you need to come back. You need to come back. In either case, hell is hot. Eternity is forever. Please obey the gospel of Jesus Christ before it's too late. He doesn't promise tomorrow's. Will you come while we stand and while we sing the songs that have been selected? <laughs>